Uh, if you didn't catch it earlier, my name is Rich Brown, and I serve here as one of the pastors. Um, so it's good to see you all again this morning. Uh, this morning's message is going to come to us from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn to Revelation 21, 1 through 5. This is God's word given to us in love. So hear the words of God over you. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5 say this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, because the former things have passed away. And he who, he who is seated on the throne then said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. With this word in mind, let's come before the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you are the God from whom all blessings flow. God, we thank you that we have this privilege this very morning of not only hearing from your word, but hearing your voice spoken to us through your word. God, we thank you that you have called us to worship you, that you've called us to adore you, to honor you, to live for your name. And so, Lord, in this time, would you use this sermon, this message, um, to fill your people here with a sense of awe and wonder of you. Lord God, may the worship of you be our chief aim this very morning. God, would you speak through me as your messenger, um, one who would speak of your grace faithfully and of your love and of repentance from sin and faith in Christ. Lord, would you use this time to not only convict us, though, but to comfort us through your word as it's preached. So we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, church, if you're not in this stage of life at this point, imagine yourself as a parent of young children. I know many of you already are in that place in life right now, but even if you're not, just imagine that you are for a moment. And it's Christmas morning. You freshen yourself up, you've got yourself all put together, and you've kind of moseyed down, maybe slowly down to the living room downstairs. The kids are already on the floor, though. They've been anticipating your entrance. And the smell of gingerbread and peppermint, cinnamon and good, you know, baked goods is just lingering in the air all around you. And the kids are just beckoning you over. Dad, Mom, when can we open up our presents? We've been waiting for like five hours at this point. Well, reluctantly, you walk over there and you get into a circle. At least this is what we do as a family. You get into a circle and one by one you start opening up your presents. And the anticipation in the air is just building. You know, moment by moment, as each present is carefully or not so carefully unwrapped, you begin to see the smiles just brim all over the faces of these little kids, especially. Maybe, maybe even us as adults. <laughs> but all I have to say 
you see as one thing is opened after another, this anticipation is building. There's excitement. I'm sure you all can relate. Here in the book of Revelation, as many of us are already familiar with, there is a sense of anticipation as well, also present throughout the book. There's this sense as John is writing, as he's seeing these incredible visions detailing something so much more significant than mere words could ever articulate. He's using these oft-repeated words to describe this, this movement, this flow of the drama of redemption. Namely, those phrases that he uses are, then I saw, fill in the blank. Then I saw that. Then I heard this. Then I heard that. And we see this anticipation, like a little child on Christmas morning, just building within John, kind of this giddiness almost. What's going to come next? Could what I will see after this be even more exciting, more thrilling than the one I've just seen? That's exactly what's happening here in Revelation 21. See, Revelation, to give some context before we dive into the passage, is a book that is just brimming with anticipation and expectation. It's a page-turner. For instance, when I was just seven years old, I picked up the book of Revelation and read it cover to cover because it was just too good to not, or to put down, rather. It was just so exciting. It captivated my attention. It's filled with mystery and wonder. It's filled with figurative images of dragons and beasts and the starry host at night and justice being served and the warmth of love fully realized. Truth be told, Revelation can also be terribly confusing, right? See, unfortunately, we have these certain stigmas that have become attached to the book of Revelation, especially over the last 20 to 40 years, if you've been in Christian circles that long. I mean, these chaotic end times theories where numbers that are intended to be representative are taken literally and people come up with dates, and these charts that have zigzagged lines all over the place connecting random things throughout the Bible together. Lines scribbled in every direction. Notions maybe that you've heard of, of people being whisked away or raptured, so to speak. And of course, all the subsequent jokes that follow that kind of thing, uh, like leaving your clothes around the house in the shape of a person for your mom to find later, uh, which I may or may not have done as a kid growing up after reading a certain series. But sincerely, the images throughout the book of Revelation can cause even the most comprehensive of readers to get a little brain strain if they are misinterpreted or misapplied. So it's important that we understand the primary goal of Revelation. And you might be asking me, Rich, what is the primary goal of Revelation? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the primary goal of Revelation is the worship of God. It's meant to invoke worship above all else. It's not meant to confuse us, but to leave us in awe of who God is. It's designed to promote a real awe toward God, a genuine faith, real repentance of sin in light of God's holiness, but also recognizing the perfection of his beauty and how much we need him. See, Revelation just resounds with this call to worship him, a call to to rest in the very peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding, even when times are hard. But Revelation is also apocalyptic in nature. It's designed to reveal something that is just so great that the literal use of words will just barely scratch the surface of what is trying to be uh, given to us 
So what is that message, you might be wondering? What is the message that is so great that the writer John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to convey to us? Well, simply put, the message is that grace will have its way. That's our theme for today, that grace will have its way. But you might be wondering, well, how can grace have its way when we live in such a world that is so void of justice being served properly or comfort being had in our hardest of moments or peace upon the earth to the fullest? In fact, how will God bring justice? How will God bring comfort? How will God bring peace? Well, our passage today, Revelation 21, 1 through 5, answers each one of these questions for us. So let's go ahead and dive in at this point. The first thing I want us to consider again is that first question that we see here implicitly brought up here from the very first verse in Revelation 21, verse 1. Again, it's that question of how will God bring justice? So turn with me, if you haven't already, please, to Revelation 21, and and take a look at this verse again one more time. Verse 1 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. See, our passage starts with that oft-repeated phrase that I mentioned earlier, then I saw. So you might be thinking, okay, what's going to come next? What is John about to see here? Well, to get to that, we first have to understand the context of this. So in case you haven't read Revelation in a while, uh, just a little kind of refresher for you. In chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation, John has seen the glory of the risen Christ right before him. He saw Christ in all of his beauty, speaking to the churches in love and admonition. In chapters 4 through 10, John then saw the holy throne room of God, all of his holiness on display. And then in chapters 11 through 20, we see God's justice being poured out, his judgment being poured out upon sin, rightfully so. And here, there's a turning point that happens between chapters 20 and 21, our text this morning. See, more than just judgment, we now move into this new sense. God's word is telling us, though, something implicitly in verse 1 here, this sudden transition from judgment to a message of hope. Listen again carefully for repetition in John's own words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. What is that saying to you? Honestly, that verse right there tells us that something is not right with the way that things currently are. Something is not right with this first earth that we currently live in. There's something about it that is sick. Even though we live in a world, an an earth that is filled with so much grandeur and splendor and majesty, at its core, something is off. And John is bringing that to our attention by conveying these things. But why is this place currently sick? Well, simply put, It's because injustice and unrighteousness currently are abounding upon it. But here in Revelation 21, verse 1, we are made to recall that God himself is the maker of heaven and earth. And therein lies our hope. Our hope is that God will renew all things at the last. 
See, as we looked at that verse, did your mind, just like mine did, go back to the creation account of Genesis 1? Perhaps it did. Think back to Genesis 1, if you will, with me. But in Genesis 1, in the creation account, we saw that God made everything out of nothing, the whole of heaven and earth, all within the span of six days. And he declared every last part of it good. And when he created Adam and Eve in his own image and after his own likeness, he called the whole sum of creation very good. But why was this called very good? You might be wondering. Well, simply put, it's because Adam and Eve walked in an intimate communion with God. God dwelt with them as their God. He was, they were his people. There was no injustice there in the new creation, the original creation, rather. There was no hunger or thirsting, no scraping by or lack. There was no toil in their work, no discord in their fellowship with God or one another. And yet the perfection of creation came crashing down suddenly as a result of the fall, as we know. When man tried to sin against God and put himself up as a little God in his own life, rebelling against God's good law, And so we too, this very day, have the effects of sin within us. Even as believers who have been saved by grace, who love the Lord Jesus Christ, we still feel that rebel sigh within our own soul against God. Do you feel it? I know I do. I mean, we do not love the Lord our God wholeheartedly as we ought. We do not love our neighbor as ourself. And yet, as those who have been saved by grace who have tasted and seen that God is indeed good, as those who have repented of our sin and cast our faith upon Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel, we have this earnest desire for justice to come, for justice to reign upon this earth. We long for that day when death will be but just simply a memory, when sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. My friends, the good news is that this day, this day of healing from heaven is soon coming. It's as good as done because God himself has promised it to us in advance. Just as Revelation foretells that judgment for sin is nigh, in Revelation 20 in particular, so too does it then tell us at the beginning of this passage that the world will be recreated. But how, you might be wondering, how will it be recreated? I mean, will this world be crumpled up like a sheet of paper and balled up and thrown into the trash can? And to a burning ash heap, (laughs) like some of the ancient pagan philosophers of Plato's day speculated. No, that's not what the Bible tells us will happen. Rather, the Bible tells us that there will be a refinement of the first creation, a restoration, so to speak, of the old. And that's in view here in Revelation 21. So you might be wondering, you know, how can you say that in confidence, Well, if you're wondering that question, let me answer that question with another question. What do you think that word new means there in Revelation 21, verse 1? It's used four times right there, so it's pretty important. But what do you think it means? Well, there are two specific uses of the word new in the original Greek language of the New Testament. And one use of the word new had this idea of being new in quality. To use an illustration, it's as if You know, when you go and wash and wax your car thoroughly and you vacuum it out and you clean it all up and you might deck it out with new equipment or things of that sort, the end result is as good as new. 
maybe it's even a little better than the original vehicle you had to begin with. But there's also another kind of usage of the word new in the Greek. And that's the idea of something being brand new in substance. Not just quality, but in substance. It's as if you go out and buy that new car when your 17-year-old car is about to die on you. Might be speaking from experience here. But what's amazing is that here in Revelation, the idea of new is not this idea of getting a brand new car, starting over from the old, but rather the idea of fixing patiently something. What's quite simply astounding is that this word new here, and not only here in Revelation 21, but all over the scripture, wherever it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, it always uses that same word or that same meaning of the idea to convey that things will be recreated and restored. It will be as good as new, if not even better than the beginning. Creation, in other words, will be made new in quality, not substance. In other words, the culmination of God's work in the world that he's actively doing right before our eyes even doesn't end with the idea of replacement or throwing something away. Rather, it has the idea of restoration, of healing. About a month ago, I went to Kroger on my usual run over there once a week, and I came home uh, with a living mini spruce tree. It was about like a foot tall or so at the time, and uh, admittedly, it looked a bit like the Charlie Brown Christmas tree that you might have seen if you watched that movie recently for Christmas. Uh, It looks like it had a bad haircut or something, you know, prickly pines all over the place, but I loved the little guy, right? Just like Charlie Brown did. And I took it home and ended up potting it and uh, putting it in a pot rather and, and putting some new soil in there and, and a brick red pot all around it. Gave it plenty of water and plenty of sunlight. <clears throat> and over the past month, this little living uh, you know, spruce tree has been growing like crazy. <laughs> had some friends over last night and they even were feeling it. And there's so much new growth and light green little pine needles poking out from all over. And it's amazing to see this thing because what could have been left for dead, so to speak, has been given new life. Now, I still haven't figured out exactly how long I'm going to actually keep this thing because it might not be socially acceptable to keep a Christmas tree in your living room for another five months or so. But in the meantime, it's a pretty vivid illustration of new life happening right before you because of something small that you did to contribute. But I share this story because there's something about this idea of restoration that we all long for, don't we? This idea of new growth, this idea of patiently waiting and working toward a goal or nurturing the growth of something rather than just simply tossing it or giving up on it. And after all, doesn't everything of value in our own lives operate the same way? I mean, commitment. Think of that word commitment. Commitment itself until the very end And even going the extra mile for somebody is such a beautiful thing to see. Loving your spouse well, raising your children, being close to a friend in their darkest hour of need till the very end is the most beautiful thing in the world. And all these things require patience, compassion, humility, but also steadfast loyalty to the end. That's why one of our values here at Grace as a church is that we're committed to one another. We're a family. We're committed to each other and our own welfare together. And we're committed for the long haul at that. But church, do you realize that God is committed to you also for the long haul? 
Do you know that? Do you feel it? See, he doesn't look at creation as if it's something about to be dismissed. Because he's in the business of resurrection and restoration, as Tom was saying earlier. Christian, you are the apple of God's eye. And the same God who will restore creation at the very last is the same God who is working out his grace in your life, though it may feel slow at times. Your suffering is never in vain, nor is your labor. And at the last, death itself, the sea, which it refers to here, death, all injustice against God's people, will be no more. And that brings us to our second point for this morning. This comes to us from Revelation 21, verses 2 through 4. So we've asked the question, how will God bring justice? But also, how will he bring comfort to us? God's word in Isaiah, chapters 25, 35, and even in chapter 51, all foretell this grand story, this real story, that God himself will eventually swallow up death and wipe the tears from our faces. And the result will be nothing less than exuberance and joy to the uttermost. Don't picture this, this terrible idea of heaven as just sitting around in a circle singing kumbaya for all eternity. That's not heaven at all. Rather, what scripture tells us is that we cannot stop being filled with joy in the presence of God, the Almighty, for all eternity. It'll be as if our speech be like laughter all the time because we're just that filled with joy in his presence. But listen again to these words from Revelation 21, verses 2 through 4 with me. <clears throat> Revelation in, in, in verse 2 right here says this, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I then heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every last tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, here in this text, John again starts this thought with the phrase, and I saw. So you might be thinking, okay, well, what comes next, right? Well, think again back to the creation account from Genesis 1, but also chapter 2. See, there in the beginning, God not only made the heavens and the earth and filled everything with them with such beautiful things, but God placed Adam and Eve specifically in a garden, a garden called Eden. And what's amazing is that we see here in the Garden of Eden a kind of dwelling place with God, a place where there was beauty and enjoyment of his presence, a place where there was no pain or sorrow. And here there is a, a correlation going on with the creation account when things will be restored and recreated, as it were, in Revelation 21. Just like Genesis, there's this picture of a dwelling place with God, a physical place meant to conjure up these images of him dwelling with us. And here it uses this name for a city, Jerusalem, that we all probably have heard of, of course, as believers. But what's interesting is that that name Jerusalem implies so much because the word shalom or peace is right there in its own name, Salem, Jerusalem, peace, God's peace upon the city. That name is packed with so much meaning. And what's amazing is that it reminds us again of God's dwelling with us. Now, what's amazing is that these words of comfort, which God speaks to us here, 
where all of our tears will be wiped away within this new city, speaks to us words of comfort as we anticipate glory. But you might be wondering, how do we apply these now? To put it simply, God has made this promise with us through his word. And as such, we can trust the promise maker himself. Though I'm only in my early 30s myself, I've already experienced so much over the last 10 years of being in different ministerial roles. I've seen God work in the most difficult situations in people's lives around me. And over the past 10 years especially, I've gotten the chance to to walk with people through abusive situations, through suffering the loss of their own gainful employment, through feeling crushed under the weight of a juggernaut, through struggling with matters of identity, through questioning their own salvation due to besetting sin, and people who have felt the crippling sting of the loss of even their own children. And I myself have walked through my own share of suffering in both not only the ministry, but also in other employments. But if I've learned one thing over the course of that time, it's that God is indeed trustworthy and true. He's worth clinging on to when all hope seems lost. As a child of God, when the pain for you seems too difficult to bear and the heartache that you face that is so real is too heavy for you, I would encourage you to turn your eyes upon Christ who loves you because he is the king in all of his glory. He is the lamb who was slain for you before the very foundation of the world and who alone can bring comfort to the weary soul. God, by his own arm of salvation, will bring justice to his oppressed church, and he will likewise bring comfort to a war-tattered people like ourselves. And he already began that work 2,000 years ago by living in our place and dying in our place. See, the comfort of God seen here in this passage where it talks about him wiping away our tears at the last is really rooted not just here in this own passage where we see the fruit of the gospel bearing forth, but it's really rooted earlier in the book of Revelation. So I'd actually invite you to turn over to Revelation chapter 5 for a moment as we look at this together. In Revelation 5, there's this image of the throne room of grace, God in all of his glory. And people there in the throne room are wondering, you know, how will God bring comfort to his people? That same question we were asking earlier. How will God bring comfort? And there in verses 9 through 10, we begin to see this amazing answer unfold right before our eyes. In Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10, the Lamb of God takes his rightful place the only one who could bring justice by unrolling the scroll and bringing judgment against sin by ultimately bearing it upon himself in the place of sinners. Look at verses 9 through 10, if you will. They say this, Worthy are you, the Lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Believer in Christ, grace will have its way in bringing you comfort as you look to him, Christ, who reigns over you in love. So behold your king. Behold the one whose kingdom cannot be shaken. So not only does Christ ultimately bring us justice 
and comfort. But now Revelation answers that third and final question for us this morning. You know, who will bring us peace? Shalom. Let's look with verse 5. Let's look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5 here are the very words of Christ himself. And listen carefully. Here's what your God says. Verse 5 says this, And he who is seated on the throne, the one in all of his majesty, said the following, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. See, up until this point, we've looked at the new creation, this amazing picture that awaits us as believers, as a place where bitterness and sorrow ends, where righteousness just fills the earth to the fullest. We've seen a description of the holy city of New Jerusalem, which served as a sign to draw our attention to understand God's comfort and the dwelling of his own place with us. We've even considered the fact that God with, will by his own mighty right hand deliver us and wipe away every tear from our eyes at the last day, knowing that death will be no more and that all mourning and pain and crying that accompanies such things will be put away. It will be just a memory. We have this picture of a better Eden to come, a garden turned into a city, a place where God's heavenly holiness brings healing to the earth. But all of these things, and please hear this, all of these things that we've read so far simply pale in comparison to the truth of verse 5. See, again, in verse 5, the thundering voice of God the Most High is what ultimately captures our attention. Beyond these fascinating images and this hope of glory, we have God right here in front of us in verse 5 the voice of our God, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, cries out, behold, I am making all things new. So lest our vision become filled with earthly things, lest our memory of years gone by pervade our minds as we read this chapter in chapter 21, whether our hope be wrongly rooted in the promise of the new creation, which itself is good, or the kingdom of God itself God calls our attention and he calls us to worship him first and foremost, above all else, to bask in his glory because he is the one who is most worthy of praise. He is the author and the giver of life. He is our salvation, our hope, and our real joy. Circumstances alone will not give us the peace that we so desperately long for, that promise of healing itself again, pales in comparison to the God alone who is himself our peace. We are in this day and age still a church that is imperfect. (laughs) Surprise. We await glory with patience as God's grace works in our hearts and our minds to conform us all the more into the image of Christ. But our righteous deeds themselves are not the goal, nor are they the prize. Rather, our great reward is Christ himself as believers. As the hymn writer Ann Cousin once said about 100 years ago, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, for the lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. See, God's words, I am making all things new, call us to worship him, For the very one who rescued you, believer, from the clutches of Satan and sin and death 
is making you new. Though outwardly we might be wasting away. He who laid aside his robes of glory, who took on human flesh, who came to us as a lowborn king at Christmas, knows your suffering and will soon bring you peace. He who bore your sin, your shame upon that cross, canceling the record of debt that stood against us as believers, is the same one who calls you to trust in him for salvation. For by his wounds we are healed. He who ascended on high and who leads us, his people, to that glory land one day, who is even now reigning and ruling in glory and interceding for us day and night, will surely bring about the fullness of his kingdom here on a restored earth. Talk about joy to the world. So how do we have this peace with God that we long for? Ultimately, it's through faith in Christ. Nothing short of that. How we experience his peace daily? By knowing and resting in the truth that is there in Joshua 1.9. What does Joshua 1.9 say? It says that your God, the Lord your God, will be with you wherever you go. His words are indeed trustworthy and they are true. They're worth clinging to, believer. So as we conclude, do you know God as your refuge and as your strength? Are you walking with him as your present help in time of trouble? And do you know him as such daily? Do you know Christ as the one who will bring justice to the oppressed, who will comfort the brokenhearted, and who will establish his peace upon the earth? Friends, one day this earth will be made new. Judgment against sin will be made, but also the healing from heaven will meet this earth. And better still, Jesus' reign over all the earth will be known because grace will have its way. So will you let grace have its way in your life today? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the one who makes all things new through Christ. You're the one who strengthens us. You're the one who, who knows us, who loves us. God, we thank you that you are our mighty refuge, a mighty tower whom we can run to and find safety. God, we thank you that in the midst of the pains of life, in the midst of death and dying and sickness and sorrow, Lord, you are the one who holds us fast. We thank you that we are upheld by you, our rock and our refuge. And so we pray all this in Christ's name, amen.